Welcome to Kunstavond Radio. Every Friday at 9 p.m. we go uh, on air at Radio Warm and online are commissioned uh, with commissioned audio work by local artists, interviews, behind-the-scenes stories and music. My name is Kim de Haas and I will be your co-host for today. Next to me is... Shay. We did a little switcheroo. That was so cool. Uh, together we're going to present the upcoming hour of Kunstavond Radio. Kunstavond uh, Radio is a collaboration of the Six Contemporary Arts Institute located here in the city center of Rotterdam. Normally we would open our doors to the public every Friday night for free between 6 and 9 and uh, we can do that now, finally! So, um, this upcoming hour we're still going to make radio, still a digital version. And uh, we're going to listen to Warm now. Kim, would you tell us what Warm is going up to? I will try to do my best, but they're here live, so if I do anything wrong, they will correct me. Um, you will be listening to a conversation with curator Ray Parnell, podcast and activi- activist uh, Miriam El Maslusi. Um, they reveal uh, more about her research, about process, protest chants in the Netherlands and her artistic process during a May residency at Warm Pirate Bay. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Have fun, guys. From 1983 to 2021, from Black Lives Matter to Kick Out Sort Beat, this is the sound of protest. I am Mariam Almaslohi, and with me, we'll be exploring the sound of protest in the Netherlands. I am a podcast maker, mostly known for co-hosting and co-founding the Dipsaus podcast, a podcast by and for women of color. And since I was 18 years old, I've been writing and organizing for change and equality. And in this collaboration with Worm Rotterdam, I am making this series. In these three episodes, I'll be exploring the sound of protest in the Netherlands. What is its sound? How did it develop? And where are we now? From my perspective, born and raised in the Netherlands, Muslim and proud African. I talk to friends, activists, artists and demonstrators to share their perspective on the sound of protest. Um, so, hello everyone. Um, that was a trailer to the three-part podcast series, The Sound of Protest. Um, my name is Ray Parnell. I'm the curator of the Worm Pirate Bay, and I'm so happy that we were able to host Miriam during the month of April um, for her incredible research residency about, yeah, The Sound of Protest. Um, and even better, we are lucky to have Miriam in the studio today to talk about her process and to discuss some of her favorite sounds that she discovered during her research. So welcome, Miriam. Thank you so much for having me. And it's very exciting because I haven't been to Rotterdam in maybe a year. So it really feels like a day out. So thank you so much for having me. Amazing. Um, so we don't have so much time. I think we should get started. Let's get um, started. Yeah, so as you said in your trailer, uh, you come from a podcast background, so you have produced a very popular, very impactful 
Dip Sauce Podcast. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about your history in podcasting and talk particularly about this journey in creating The Sound of Protest? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Dipsas podcast was basically created because we thought that there should be more of our perspective. And our perspective is of women of color and specifically black women living in the Netherlands. And um, we talk about society. We talk about racism in the Netherlands, sexism. And uh, when you asked me to make the sound of protest, um, I also thought, like, how many stories are there where the sound of protest is interpreted or told by the perspective of women of color here in the Netherlands and um, I kind of you know during that residency I kind of got lost in that because I haven't really no one has really asked me to think about protesting like that you know you organize a protest you hope you make an impact and then you go home and you continue activism and this question of you know researching and searching you know about what is that sound what were the chants and every time I started researching I would find out something about me a protester and um, I kind of got lost in that research because as I was researching for example the anti-Iraq war where I begin the episode with it was my first demonstration as a 13 year old and I had underestimated how much that shaped me as a as a person so I'm very thankful I got to do that because it it also taught me a lot about myself actually through that protesting and through that sound and so um, I know when we spoke earlier, you talked a lot about this process and this introspection. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you discovered about yourself? Well, what I discovered is that it has really shaped me to the person I am today. I mean, I talk about the protest that happened in 2003 when I was 13, and I made this when I was 31. Um, and then in that period, you don't really have the comfort to think about, oh, what does it mean? And, you know, in, in the second episode, we talk about protesting as a ritual. I have never thought about it like that. Or in the third episode, you talk about, uh, we talk about, you know, uh, protesting being a f an affirmation. Um, you don't get to think about it as an activist. You're just thinking about the next thing you have to organize. So I got triggered a lot. Uh, like, okay, this, this has taught me something, but also has taught me something about the person I am that, to me, going to the protest, participating or organizing has really made me to the person I am today. And that maybe made my, you know, my, um, uh, my goal a bit blurry. Um, but also, I'm so thankful I, got, I, I had the time to, to do that. And I, while making these three episodes, and you would think like three episodes or 30 minutes, I mean, it consumed, like, I wouldn't think about anything else than oh my God, really, that has, like, really the anti-Iraq war? Hearing my sister about it, I was like, wow, that was, like, the first steps of my emancipation. And um, so, yeah, no, I could, I could really talk about this for, <laughs> for forever. Yeah, I really, what I loved about your podcast as well is you're talking about your own like legacy within activism but you're also really talking about the people who have made an impact in your life and yeah. the people who inspired you and i thought that was yeah just like a really beautiful aspect of yeah. your podcast uh, thank you thank you so much i mean i try to cooperate songs and 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 sounds and i even i had a perfect clear thing i was wanting to do for the second episodes but then um, you know, the pro-Palestine demonstration happened after, you know, the attacks on Gaza and Sheikh Jarrah. And then I was like, well, no, you know, I have to, I have to go to that demonstration and record what is going on there. 
And it's been a long time. It's been a year since I went to, de to a demonstration because of Corona. And I was like, oh my God, people are coming together. I'm seeing people I haven't seen in such a long time. And protesting also just literally brings people together. And I was, you know, I have underestimated what it meant to me. And I'm so thankful. Like, even though all of the <laughs> almost panic attacks I had while making it and thinking like, oh my God, what am I doing? Um, yeah, it really has, um, in a way, shown me a different perspective. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Um, okay, so you have brought in three sounds that you... I did, yeah. ...discovered, re rediscovered, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the first one is a song. It is a song. So maybe you can give us a bit of a context, and then we can listen to a little bit of it's it. It's a Dutch song from the 80s, and I don't know much about, um, you know, what about Dutch Dutch music, but I know, and the, the, the name of the singer escapes me right now, um, but I know he was a leftist white guy who would make songs in, in the 80s, and while I was talking to Anusha Nzume, whom I make the Dipsas podcast with, and she told me about her big impactful protest. It was about, you know, when Kervin Dienmeyer was killed, is a young black man who was killed by a white supremacist um, a man in, in Amsterdam while he was going out. Um, yeah, maybe a trigger warning. Um, I will describe now how he, he got killed. And um, he was stabbed multiple times and taxi drivers did not want to take this black boy to a hospital because they didn't want to get their taxi um, um, dirty. And um, in this song, the singer describes what happened very, very like explicitly. Um, so yeah, maybe we should just yeah, listen okay. to it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's start it. It's in Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, this song. <laughs> Very <I know>. 80s. <laughs> so when I discovered this song while I was researching, I know the song by heart now. You know, it has become... <laughs> it's a catchy song, but it's also a song where, you know, me being an activist, like an intersectional feminist and all that, I listen to the song and he's basically almost saying like, I don't see color, you know, don't think in black and white, um, but think in the color of your heart. But I mean... Right now, all I'm hearing is like, I don't see color and hashtag all lives matter, you know. But I have to realize that in the 80s in Amsterdam, while, you know, that's only, you know, not even 40 years after the Second World War, um, Amsterdam and the, the Netherlands was trying to be this to tolerant nation, you know, everybody is safe here. If you're a feminist or if you're from the LGBTQIA plus community, and then this happened and it shocked the whole, you know, it shook the whole country. And to me, what surprised me is that a white mainstream singer is talking about this black young man being killed but he, because he's describing it, you know, in the second verse, he's saying like, yeah, because of course you don't want to get your taxi dirty, right? Like he is really like um, picking a side here. And I, I... I I am I was really surprised by uh, hearing this, so I 
placed myself in the 80s because first of all, I was like, no, this song is problematic. I'm not going to put it in a podcast. But then I thought, no, because this was the soundtrack of a year of protest in the Netherlands in the 80s. And Anusha says, like, there was the mayor who would speak up and be like a Jewish mayor who would say, never in my city, not after the Second World War. And I cannot imagine the mayor of The Hague last year coming to a Black Lives Matter demonstration and being like, no, never in, in the Netherlands. So to me, this song is, <laughs> it's a kumbaya song, but at the same time, I can realize how it's, it's an important song. Yeah, beautifully said. Yeah, actually, <laughs> just like, very elegant. Um, okay, so another sound that you brought were chants in Arabic. Yes, oh, yes. I'm, I'm Dutch Moroccan, so that means I was born and raised here in the Netherlands, but that my parents are from Morocco, and my parents thought it was very uh, important for me to learn Arabic, so I speak um, different um, dialects of Arabic. And what I brought with me is how in 2011 the Arab Spring began. And the Arab Spring, I mean, I, turn, I just turned 21 when I turned on the TV and, um, and Mubarak, the dicta- dictator of Egypt, um, had stepped down, um, has been forced to step down. And I just realized how much as a Dutch Moroccan, post 9-11 teenager, as a Muslim woman, you know, um, how how I thought like, oh my God, I should look back to my roots and actually learn about what activism looks like and what it sounds like. So the, the, the sound I brought today comes from Syria, it comes from Tunisia, and it comes from Egypt. And I'll translate later for everyone. المجرم هرب السارق هرب السفاح القاتل هرب اهرب اهرب من ليبيا والشعب هو اللي يحكم المجد time I hear this I can get so emotional I mean the first fragment that we heard is a um, you know middle-aged man a Tunisian man um, he's walking down the street in a, a very empty street at night in in Tunis in the city of Tunisia there's a curfew people are not allowed to go out um, they have suffered you know casualties from you know clashes and they have just learned that the dictator Ben Ali left the country. He fled the country because of the protest. And he's just like screaming his lungs out and saying, Ben Ali has left. The butcher of Tunisia has left. The terrorist has left. Tunisia, you have won. Um, and I remember seeing that and just seeing that you think like, I can do anything. You know, if a people can, if a people can after so many years do this, um, it gave me so much empowerment and affirmation as a North African. And then the next fragment is from Egypt, from Cairo. And Cairo, for many years, the protests there have been almost festive, you know. Also a lot of casualties, but also a lot of music. 
um, and this is a is a is a musician Ala Wardi, his name is, and he is singing basically the chant. So he did not invent the lyrics that he's singing. So he's saying like Kulina um, uh, So all of us in one hand, um, we're asking just one thing: Mubarak, uh, you have to go. So uh, this is like the language. If you say irhal, like leave or yasqut, that uh, yasqut, which I use in the second episode, if you say this word, everybody's going to think of the uh, of the Arab Spring. And then the last one, to me, is at the same time tragic because it was in Aleppo, in Aleppo uh, in Syria. And what they're saying is like they're chanting, "Hey Damascus, you know, here in Aleppo, the regime has fallen." And um, I mean, with the knowledge of now, we know that Aleppo has been struck so harshly by by the dictator um, Al-Assad with with support of the West. Um, but it was so festive, and little did they know. And at the same time, it breaks. It really breaks my heart. Yeah, thank you so much. And I remember you said when you were speaking about these particular chants, you also talked about um, specifically like doing chants in Arabic in the Netherlands and. The context of that. So, can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I can. I mean, in the in the first episode, I didn't re- much realize that in in like a sea of white protesters, there was this basically this 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 group of people of color who could chant in Arabic. And I mean, if you protest for the 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 against the you know the demolition that we see now in in Iraq, I think it's important to speak to those people in the language that they would fully understand. Um, but also, um, also nowadays, like when it comes to pro-Palestine demonstrations, but also a few years ago, just saying something in Arabic is almost revolutionary um, because we live in a very Islamophobic country. So anything that is said Arabic, even if you say glass of wine in Arabic, because they think all Arabs, of course, are Muslims, it also sounds like you're 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 a terrorist. So to me. Chanting, so I, I incorporated that also in the series. Just chanting in Arabic is almost uh, 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 defying. It's saying, I'm here and I'm speaking in the language that I think is appropriate for this battle and appropriate for this protest. Yeah, thank you. Um, you brought one more sound. One more. Yes, do you want to introduce it? Uh, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies. It's from the Battle of Algiers. It's a movie from 1966. It's a black and white movie. And it's about the resistance movement against the French colonizers in Algeria. And what I'm got the I I brought um, a, a, a fragment of Ululations and Ululations is and in North Africa and the Middle East and certain parts of the continent of Africa women use it to um, uh, women use it and I have to say also the queer communities also in 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 the continent use it a lot and it could be used on a wedding but in this specific uh, fragment that I brought with me is. Um, so uh, you have to you have to just like imagine the scene that uh, Algerian people are lined up and being frisked by French uh, by French soldiers, and then there's this little boy who is part of the resistance and the FNL, um, who goes up to a microphone, he, he confiscates a microphone, and he says to the people, "The resistance is still alive. The resistance is still alive, and we are with you." And the men. Eh, we're going to talk in the very binary gender roles right now. Um, the men say, long live Algeria, and the women respond with a ululation. And to me, if they said, long live Algeria is good, but the power it gave, the women gave it so much power, so much body, uh, yeah, to me, it's one of the best fragments in that whole movie.
I mean, just imagine being like a friend's shoulder there and seeing all these women making so much sound. And to me, it's just like, it, it says, also what I like about the movie is the visibility of women and their role they played in the resistance, but also just their sound just reaches like so far because it's a high, high note uh, sound. So um, yeah, and I heard it. So in the second episode, I talk about, uh, uh, or I mentioned Ululation because I went to that Palestine demonstrations. And I thought, like, I have to respond to these chants in the ululations, and, and, and I did it, and the response is just always amazing. What is the response? The response is that everybody just makes a very loud sound, and it doesn't matter what you do, um, because the ululation has to be responded to. So if I start, you have to answer me, and someone has to answer you. So that's why you can hear, yeah, it's like, so it becomes full, it has volume. So you can also hear in this, a few people start, and it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's the whole point of ululation. For example, if there's a wedding, it's not allowed for the bride to walk in silence. Um, but before music or whatnot, women would just ululate all the time. But you can't... It's a strong, it's a strong sound. So uh, you can't do it all at once. So I'll do it, then you do it, then you do it. And before you know it, you can fill two minutes with the ululation by the time the violin, the derbuka will, uh, will come in. So to me, how, how it's, it demonstrates how what we call now the global West has always found a language, a sound to, to, to empower a feeling. So in this, in this particular fragment, it's about resistance. Um, you know, and they knew like instinctively almost, okay, we gotta empower this. How do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, you've shown some really different examples of like protests and things like that. So I'm kind of curious, like, what do you feel like the Netherlands can learn from like other types of protest practices, especially mm. in terms of like sound and volume and things like this? I think we can learn uh, learn a lot. I mean, um, you can also see right now like how amazing African American or Black Americans have mobilized and actually created the language that we're reproducing right now. I mean, Black Lives Matter, um, I can't breathe, hands up, don't shoot. I mean, we all know these these chants and we use them. Uh, what do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. Um, so there are many things that we're 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 using nowadays, but there are the what I feel or what I have seen is that the big numbers now in protesting comes from, um, come from causes that have to do something about racism or geopolitics. So something like Palestine has always been a symbol of resistance everywhere. You know, you see a Palestinian flag anywhere in a an, in an university in Oakland to like a university in Cape Town. Um, and we have also learned a lot about there from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Um, but I think that here in the Dutch context, after the 80s, there has, and th that, that's what neoliberalism does, that's what capitalism does. You get comfortable, you think like, it's, it's fine, I don't, have to, I, have to, I don't have to invent a language like that. And I think the anti-Zwarte Piet movement, which was led by black people, um, has created a language. So they took, for example, you know, kick out Zwarte Piet, faced for iedereen. 
um, they have really created um, a, a sound that I think that a lot of white Dutch people need to catch up to. Uh, so I think the Dutch have um, have kind of lost a sound um, because there was a sound. The biggest demonstration was anti-nuclear power, was anti-Iraq war, uh, but it never has a big demonstration. Uh, never have been after that big demonstrations that had something to do with the Netherlands. Um, only until you know um, uh, the the anti uh, um, uh movement and Palestine. I mean, ten thousands of people in two thousand and fourteen demonstrated through the streets of Rotterdam. Um, I was there um, when we occupy things. The last time I occupied something was the Erasmus Brug here because we said unfazed for iedereen. You know, since class has to be a party for everyone. So actually, I caught myself that most of the language, protest language in Dutch that I know, has to do with anti-racism. And I think that is something um, the, the Dutch society has to acknowledge, celebrate, and, um, um, and cherish. Beautifully said. Yes. Um, it looks like we need to move to the next segment, but I just want to thank Miriam so much thank for sharing. for having me. Of course, your wisdom, your thought, your audio. <laughs> Maybe you can share where people can listen to your podcast and where they can follow your work. Um, definitely. They can follow most of it on the Dipsas podcast um, on social media, but also dipsaspodcast.org and at Afleveringen, which means episode. There you can find also the Sound of Protest episodes. And also, you know, I, I I'm not a good, I'm a granny on the gram, so I'm not good at, at social media. But also I'd like to push like the Spectrum podcast that I make with uh, Rias Wegberg. Also in Dipsa's podcast, we think, you know, diversity is important, but having three black women who are cis and straight is not diverse. So we started the Dipsa's podcast and where the queer experience is central there. And season two has started because it's Pride Month. Happy Pride, everybody. Wait, um, uh, Dipsa's or Spectrum? Spectrum. Okay. Spectrum podcast, yes. Um, so, um, there's the, the first episode with this, is with the amazing Damani Leitzman. It's in Dutch though, um, but at Dipsa's podcast you'll find that you'll find plenty of um, um, English sp uh, spoken episodes. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me and putting me on this journey, Ray. <laughs> thank you. Soul searching. <laughs> thank you, Worm. Um, up next is CBK Rotterdam. Uh, in CBK Rotterdam's podcast series The Gedroomde Stad, The Dreamed City, uh, Rotterdam artists sit down to talk about their favorite work in the city, the relationship of their own work, and are also asked about their dreams and desires for the city. In this fourth episode, The Gedroomde Stad, Janine van Berkel talks with artist Bender Nabipoor about his work and his favorite artworks in Rotterdam. Enjoy listening, everyone. Welcome to De Gedroomde Stad, which roughly translates to The Dreamed City. I am Janine van Berkel and the host of this podcast. Here I'm talking to visual artists from Rotterdam who are currently active in the city and are supported by CBK Rotterdam. Today I'm here with Benda Nabipoor. He tends to work with social concerns, popular culture, memory and literature. He tries to find a way to create interventions between the artwork slash himself and the spectator. His main area of practice is making interactive sculptures and installations, but within the recent years, he has also been doing public interventions. He enjoys collaborations and respects the collective consciousness greatly. Welcome, Pendar. Thank you. Hi. 
Thanks for having me. <laughs> super nice to be here. There's already so much to talk about here, but as usual, we'll start with discussing a public artwork in the city. And you decided to change it up a little bit because you wanted to talk about several artworks in the city. La Homme qui marche 1907, which translates to The Man Who Walks by August Rodin. Vrijheid van Meningsuiting 2006, which translates to Freedom of Speech by Chris Ripken. The Reus van Rotterdam 2011, which translates to Giant of Rotterdam by Herman Lamers and Two Turning Vertical Rectangles. 1971 by George Rickey. I'm very curious why you chose these works and how they relate to you or maybe to your practice. Well, the reason why I chose them is not necessarily related to the meanings of the works. It's just from my experience as a passerby, mostly. I'm not necessarily finding them appealing or nice or like the top-notch artwork but more as something that has a story to tell. I'll start with the uh, the metal one. What was it? Turning to vertical rectangles. Yeah, turning to... Because I think it's... Uh, I find this work very interesting because uh, you only find the kinetic part of it when it's windy. And when it's windy, there are less people there. And so the, the sculpture is, is a little bit like... I find it a little bit of a shy sculpture because it's not appreciated uh, like when it's sunny and when it's, there's thousands of people out there it's not moving so everybody thinks oh it's just this giant piece of metal but when it's like windy and everybody's escaping it's doing its dance yeah. so i find it funny that it's uh, it's not appreciated as much as it needs to be and the other thing is that i'm always thinking that one day there's too much wind that it flips and it just throws an object like a golf course. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> boom! Like, <laughs> send yeah. somebody to, make I don't know, <laughs> to Belgium or something. <laughs> but uh, I remember the first time that I walked in the city of Rotterdam, it was also a windy uh, winter. I was walking with Yuri Gopin, a friend of mine, and he was introducing me to the city and taking me... And I saw this sculpture, so that really stuck with me. The second one... Reus van Rotterdam. That's, that one, I, I really uh, like the gesture. First, it's a good sculpture. The dress code is like the 50s, Rotterdam, young guy. And also, it's like silverish. So, it just reminds me, it's, it just makes this image of black and white film for me. And the the, the face, when I, when I read the story of... It, I don't know, I just, I didn't even know it's a giant before. The third one with the Rodin's uh, sculpture, the reason why I chose this one is because a few years ago, I think 2017, the city uh, lent this work to a museum in Germany. A friend of mine, Seal Kroll, uh, who is a sculptor in Rotterdam, he decided, he was uh, cycling by while he saw this happening, the taking away of the work, and then he decided to put one of his sculptures there without any permission. Or oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he just wears a yellow vest and makes a sculpture exactly the size. He's a perfectionist now, so it's like millimeter feet perfect uh, of the plinth because it was gone, but the, the the stone plinth was still there. 
So he makes the sculpture and he, that exactly fits into into the empty plinth and puts it there with a friend and just leaves. And the sculpture remains there until the one day before uh, the Rodan sculpture comes back. No way, really. <laughs> yeah. And it looks so neat because like every angle is it's like a geometrical shape, a tall one. And nobody could even guess that it's a, I don't know, graph, you know, like city art or yeah. because it was so nicely made. It looks like a, a, a really tall diamond. So, yeah, I was thinking because uh, when when I do like urban intervention, uh, sometimes you you have this image in your head that, oh, I'm going to do this. And then you go in the city and then you, you interact with uh, people and in the real world, you realize, oh, this is not working like, or this is not the result that I want it to be. Uh, and sometimes it's just super easy as just wearing a yellow vest and, and doing it. I don't know if it was another person, would it be different? A person of color would like somebody ask them a question of, oh, what are you doing? Or what was the last one? The freedom of speech. Yes, exactly. Yes. The freedom of speech is something that I also encounter when I go home. I, I don't mean to disrespect the maker but it's uh, a work that i find so so in i don't find it very nice and right. it's so bad that it's good <laughs> you know? i find it i find it like aesthetically a little bit amateur mm. but it's so bold because it's it's put in a like a perfect spot and uh it has a it, it take it takes a lot of room but like, it's one of those things that I'm like, ah, oh, this one again. And I'm like, oh, I'm loving it. It's so bad that I love it. <laughs> so so that was uh, the, uh, the, the fourth one. The work is a little bit too symbolic for me. But, uh, yeah. It actually does have an interesting story. Yeah. So the sculpture was created as a satisfaction after the murder of Theo van Gogh. Artist Chris Ripken had written the text... Thou shall not kill on his facade. And this text was immediately removed by the municipality. Ripken protested against this and he received apologies from the mayor and an amount of 15,000 euros to make a new work. Yeah, in the center of the group is a female figure made of blue ceramic. Around her are five heads in the color of five ethnicities. Um, she has no head herself, but one is already starting to grow up from her torso. She is a mother, and with this beheading, Ripken expresses freedom of speech. And yeah, this work can be found at the Schiekade near Graafsliceum, actually near to where we are now. I actually like it that you also chose a few works that you don't like. <laughs> That's the thing with urban sculptures. You cannot satisfy everybody. Not necessarily everybody. Like a whole population is going to go like, yay. <laughs> but there's like, you can have experiences with them. As, lo as long as something's out there and it's exposed, it will have stories to tell because uh, because it's out there, you know? <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. Uh. Yes, so we actually know each other from a few years back when I was uh, working at W139 in Amsterdam. 
And you in- initiated the group show Ideology Meets Implementation there. The show talked about, and I'm going to read here, the ideological systems underlying our societies that are still based on Westerns, Western notions of postmodernism, postcolonialism, postmarxism, post-democracy, an era of procrastination in which it seems to deliberately sh- slow down the necessary changes. This feels still very relevant to the work you're doing now, if I'm thinking about open source governance. Can you talk a bit more about how your art practice developed in this direction? I could say, like, generally I'm um, interested in social political um, involvement of the art and artists within the um, realm of the society. Many may disagree, but I think art has a duty of being involved uh, because it has some properties that other mediums or disciplines don't have. Art can think or view, has a perspective that other disciplines usually don't have, perhaps philosophy a little bit, but as time is passing by more and more, it is becoming more obvious that art needs to be linking disciplines to each other that's why i think like artists should be socially aware at least if not engaged of their surroundings and and work with their concerns or like social concerns yeah i i think uh, what can art what artists can bring to the table is uh is kind of special but i did start working with this kind of subjects since I was graduated from the sculpture uh, program in Tehran uh, Art University with the with the proverbs uh, waterlogged proverbs project, and that was after like 2009. There was a lot of um, um, social activities going on in Iran, so I was quite involved with uh, making work around uh, the subjects that was uh, happening. And then later I came to the Netherlands. When I was done with my research in the Dutch Art Institute, I started to find where I should go back or what kind of work should I make and started investigating, uh, or am, I, am I a designer, am I a sculptor, am I a painter? What sort of medium should I be working with? And that's somehow when I decided to, okay, I need like a core discipline to, okay, stick to this kind of uh, image in your head and then you can uh, use every media to create whatever work that you need. With the open source governance in 2015, the story is that there was a parliamentary election going on in Iran and uh, I was really hoping for more progressive results in the elections but the elections didn't happen as I wanted to be and I was thinking oh it sucks that somebody has to represent me all the time why should I like not have the voice myself and I in I challenged the whole idea of uh, representative systems from the first place and I was living in The Hague and it was like the city of representation and like there's like the Dutch Parliament, way the camera, ears the camera, thinking about laws a lot. And that was the same time as I was introduced to the idea of open source programming. So these two mixed to each, with each other and then there was a click. But I'm not the first to think about it. There's a lot of people who were thinking about like oh, making uh, the legislation open or direct, but they were all like 
focusing on other disciplines. For example, there was a lot of programmers. So I thought, okay, maybe as an artist, I can make a conversation between all of these groups. And then I started to hold these conversations or like uh, sessions, public sessions, one of them here in Mono. <laughs> it came more and more in different places that we were just discussing and talking about different aspects of having inclusive collective legislation for a society, not necessarily for a country. And there was like debates talking about ethical problems and we talked about like examples like uh, that are existing now like the pirate parties around the world or like referendums. For example, in Switzerland they do they decide everything with, with referendum. We talked about different types of casting votes, for example. Uh, is it, should it be like jury duty that everybody has to vote? Should it be that if somebody studied in a certain discipline, they should have a more say in that that vote? We talked about like the Chinese sesame, sesame points, which is like based on how well they behave, which is kind of a head scratcher. But... <laughs> Uh, so there's like all these kind of different things happening and we have all the tools we have like open source programming we have uh, smart contracts we have the blockchain system to secure but we are not using it but the representative system has been around for 800 years and I think we have now everything to replace it with direct democracy but at the same time it has to be smart enough to not to enable like popular decisions that can go wrong. So that's the challenge. How do you maneuver that? And how do you make people wanting to be involved? Uh, so it's not like a chore for them. It's more like, oh, I want to be involved because I care. Sorry, it's a long answer, but <laughs> but it, I had to explain this to go to the, uh, the exhibition of W because and uh, that's when I like I started to question the whole way that we do, do things. And I, I thought we're not necessarily dealing with our everyday problems as efficient as we as we think we are. And it's always good to question everything once in a while. Am I doing it right? Is it the good system? I think it's nice to be always critical uh, about things, not to just nag and yell and but more about constructive criticism, they call it. <laughs> So this exhibition also in W was about that, that there is like this ideological systems. Is it theocracy? Is it even democracy? Is it like free market or whatever there is? Uh, religion systems, they all have ideology, even if it's not necessarily religious. And these ideologies usually contradict their own core values when they are implemented. So this exhibition was about that. I asked these 14 artists to look for a contradictory example and present it in this exhibition. Is it still developing this kind of, are you still thinking about this? Now I'm less uh, concerned with showing examples. I'm more concerned with creating the environment for doing something about it, you know? Or like like trying to, I always like to help people develop their ideas and like think with them. and So it's more about like this next step. Yeah, what to do next. Uh, don't think it's uh, anybody's responsibility to fix the world or something. 
like I am I'm kind of reaching an age now that I'm like ah oh, okay that's enough like I played my part I'm now not trying to like oh make the world this beautiful place that everything is in place or I, I, I don't believe in idealistic uh, solutions but I think it's important that people see things really where they are not in like plastic uh, gift wrappings I, I, I like to see beyond uh, the reality that is preferred to be delivered to me because everybody, when when every, when everything is out there and exposed to the world, they, it has an agenda. In 2017, mm -hmm. you received uh, the development grant, like yes. the Ontwikkelings and Onderzoeks. This one, O and O, the O and O. This was, I think, again for open source uh, governance. Yeah. How did did this funding help you to mm. to develop this? The project basically lift off kind of uh, from just presentations here and there but in 2017 i applied for ono and i got it and that was basically like the lift off for the project and I, i i think it was really important year because at the same time i negotiated with uh, uh, mama rotterdam they allowed me to use their space as um, like a for a meeting place for public sessions that we had and we had six sessions there and one uh, by the end of 2017 in uh, w139 in this exhibition that you talked about and and that really helped the project have like a consistent presence and then this money of, of course was kind of crucial to the to the process because i could hold these sessions and i could do the research what is important to say is that the the main aim of this project is to design a blueprint uh, so it's a design it's a social design process that uh, the aim is to design an algorithm or a blueprint that using that uh, any society with any size can organize their own legislation or regulation right so you have this blueprint and then you put it in the context of i don't know say Rotterdam, and then you say oh okay we should organize it this way uh, because this blueprint you're talking about does mm. it mean that there's just one optional way to organize or does it mean like every place has like this blueprint but different outcomes like different ways of governing can come out of this it's more like you know the, with open source programming you have a program and everybody can take it and make their own version right the first the version 1.0 is always that that version and it, it it can have like a tree branch it can have like different directions and it can go in different ways so imagine like the constitution of a society is like a, a bunch of laws right if you are in a if you're able to have that as an open source document and everybody can change it but the change can affect after a certain trigger of like yes or no votes or, or yeah that's basically what i'm trying to solve is it like 50 percent plus is it uh you know like minority versus majority is it that so how does it work that's that's my own problem now <laughs> but that's kind of um, 
what it means with the blueprint. So the blueprint makes this general design and then you put it in the context of different institutions and it makes them like work in a manner that is bottom up or like decentralized. Everybody is equally having the same effect to, to make a change in that document. It's super, super interesting. But it also seems like this project is still in the making right yeah. because you're just mentioned you still have to solve some things yeah before the pandemic we we have a core group of six people and we were we kind of made a, an application for a funding which was rejected so another uh, funding that i received from sebeka was the ppr where i was i applied the first round and <laughs> i think I immediately applied. <laughs> so I was like <laughs> one of the first, I think. But that uh, helped us to apply for the uh, for these funds. This fund let me develop the project in another direction, which was more fitting with the pandemic situation. Because uh, when we were wrote the uh, application, we, we had like this program of like meetings and public sessions and inviting guest lecturers and course it was rejected and uh, then i had to rethink the strategy so i used this money to make a whole new website and now we have an open source governance website the most important part is that we have now a podcast <laughs> so if you're listening to this <laughs> you might want to look that one up too but uh, uh, this podcast is I, I i thought okay we don't have more sessions public sessions we're not going to sit around and talk. So I might as well start describing the process that was going gone uh, so far and start explaining the terms and the different educational resources that is needed to understand this project. Next to all your work with open source governance, you also mentioned that you are a sculptor and a tutor there is basically two main projects that i'm trying to keep alive uh besides like the little things that i do because i procrastinate and like <laughs> i jump from one subject to another like one day i make like prints and then the uh, next day i make like clay sculptures and then but i thought okay i need like these two projects to stick on as a way to keep a steady flow in my work and because I'm a maker, I like to also be working on, uh, on on these sculptures, which are like interactive sculptures. The the project basically started in 2011 when I graduated in Tehran. I made this series uh, that are called Waterlogged Proverbs. And these are based on Persian proverbs that describe a situation. Yeah, I, I use proverbs because I think they are really, they have a deep root in the culture of a society persian proverbs are like any other countries i think they are like they're always double-edged and they're like sneaky and it's uh poetic so i worked with uh first the waterlogged proverbs and then i thought okay i can work with the four classic elements of water earth fire and uh, wind which is kind of like uh, a little bit perhaps uh too symbolic i like how people used to describe the world with just four elements before the science came through uh, i i find it uh, innocent mm -hmm. that 
people used to think that the world is just four elements or even before that with like okay the whole world is just one element water you know like <laughs> there was like this always this in the philosophy there was always this uh, attempts to describe what is the world made out of uh, it was like air water um, and then now we have atom perhaps later we will have i don't know like uh, strawberries uh, <laughs> <laughs> <so>. who knows <laughs> Then I made this uh, series in 2011, and then that stopped. And then I did my uh, master in uh, Dutch Art Institute. And then I, I had a few years of yeah, like trying to figure things out and uh, being a little bit confused about everything, which I think is uh, natural after every graduation. Then I got this Mondrian Fund of Young Talent, and then I had the, the chance to have uh, a tutor so i i picked up gabriel lester basically i was just uh nagging to him oh i don't know what to do i i, I don't know what kind of work should i make i don't like design anymore i i don't because like for 16 years i was a graphic designer oh really <laughs> oh so you did first was a graphic designer then you went to no well oh. <laughs> My family is a, all the, my sister uh, and my father are graphic designers. So my father is like he had before the revolution in Iran in 1979. Uh, he had like this giant graphic design institute. Like and then the revolution happened and then yeah everybody left Iran so they lost their clients and then yeah people raided the office and then he he became like. Uh, he didn't have an office anymore. So he was working at home uh, in the basement. So I was uh, learning a lot of graphic design techniques from him. And then in the art school, high school, I went to art school. So like graphic lyceum you have here. Since the third year, I uh, was employed by a graphic designer in Iran. And then ever since I earned my money with graphic design. But in 2017, uh, I had this like crisis and I thought, oh, I don't want to waste creative energy on designing for somebody else. If I have creative uh, thoughts or energy, uh, I prefer to use it for, my, for something other than people's benefit. So you had this tutor, you didn't want to do graphic design anymore, oh, yeah. but you were still confused. Yeah, I went to him and I said, okay, I, 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 should I be, uh, should I follow curator, curatorship? Should I follow graphic design? Should I follow painting? What should I do? And then he said, basically he said, okay, you take one project that you like and develop that and look back at what you've done so far and then take one of those projects and, 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 and stick to it. So I, I decided to kind of go back to this Proverbs project. And then I started, for the beginning of 2017, I had to present the work because I got the Mondrian Fund. I made the first out of the uh, Earthen Proverbs series. And uh, I presented in Art Rotterdam in 2017. And how did these sculptures look? These interactive sculptures, yeah. right? Yeah, how... How did they visually look and also how did people experience them? Well, the first series, the Waterlog series, there was, it was more like everything was on a plinth and very like controlled or like gallery style. And you had to like push a button that something would happen like a toy. But in this new series, it's more spatial and basically the size is free. 
So the one in Art Rotterdam, it was 13 meters tall, and it was the floor was full of uh, earth, and you could expand it as much as you can. But basically, this one is a relation between camera and mirror and television. So you see yourself looking, at, looking to find the image, and you see yourself from another, from the top view, as if you're like dead, and you look from yourself from the top. This was in 2017, and another one that I made, which is ready now, is basically a confession room. In order to see what's inside of the work, you have to make a confession. And these two you described were from the Urten Proverbs. Yeah. Yes, okay. And then you still have like two to go, right? Oh. Or elements. Yeah, two elements. Are uh, you still working on the Urten Yeah, ones? they have to be okay. like, I think I have to make like four or five more. Yeah, like I said, these are expensive works. So so for this work, uh, luckily David Jonas, uh, who's a really nice programmer, he also worked with v uh, V2A, I think, before. He agreed to help me with the programming these works to make like a joint program. So this is kind of a process that is going on. I, I try to make like one work per year to kind of uh, finish it soon because this is dragging a little bit. I want to go to the next element. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, okay, so a little bit of a different question. Does Rotterdam as a city influence your practice? Yes, very much so. You know, I'm from Tehran. Tehran is a city of 16 million people in the daytime and 12 million in the nighttime. To me, this is... Rotterdam is a village, basically. <laughs> Sorry, but it's like the size is... I really like I was talking to my friend in Berlin last year week and I was telling him okay Berlin is too much competitive and you can't make real effect you can't make real change even if you're super like you put this much hours you put this much uh, energy but in Rotterdam I'm not saying it's easy and it's easy art scene I think it has its own challenges it's, it's more possible to do something in Rotterdam and still, it is a really good example of an urban life. So the size is perfect, I think. It's not so small, it's not so big. Because of its history, to me, it's like a playground for, for, for trying out changes and to building new experiments and trying new technology or like whatever. It has the potentiality. And of course, because of its diversity, it has the potential of doing a lot of social related works. Um, you already said some things about the art scene, or I always like to ask this final question. If you would be in charge of the art scene in Rotterdam, what would you want to change or want to do? Let's say, what are your hopes and dreams for the arts and culture here in Rotterdam? Yeah, uh, to make platforms like this one, I think is important because discussions have to be made to okay let's say to give voice to everyone to to express themselves and to debate and then see what things can be better you know like and that's when you can you can hear everybody like uh, when you hear well not now but when you go to a bar in a non-pandemic situation and you hear artists talking about oh like this fund is like so, so that's da, 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 like that, and people expressing themselves and being unhappy about, like, for example, how everything is, is handled. 
some some person can have exactly the opposite opinion about some organizational task than the other one but if you hear both of them you can find for yourself so i think actually podcast is one of the best places to discuss and in terms of like how art scene handles itself i think it's a living creature it's yeah. not like i cannot say i want it more this way or that way yeah. it's more uh, it's, it's, a, it's it's something that is, has its own consciousness i cannot i can only choose where i can live i cannot choose to change an art scene unless uh, i have like unlimited amount of influence or like money or whatever <laughs> Bender, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking thank to you. you. It was great to hear you talk about open source governance, but also about your sculpture practice. If people are curious uh, about your work, they can find it at www.pendarnabipur.com and or www.opensourcegovernance.com. But I will also put this information in the show notes. Next to this, we'd also like to thank the listeners and kindly request to share the podcast with family or friends or anyone who is curious. And also, I would like to thank Elijah Waters for the music and Linda Perpahart for the technique. This podcast was made by Sewik Adelterdam. For the listeners who are not yet familiar with Sewik Adelterdam, we are working on a lively art climate here in the city. We enable artists to develop new work and a new language and develop joint initiatives. But we also work on art in public space. Together with artists, residents and our partners, we shape a dream city. Do you want to know more about us? Then go to www.cbkrotterdam.nl But for now, until next time. Yes, thank you so much. And for the people who are still listening, thank you for staying around. And we hope to see you next week again with next week coming up Tent and Mama. So we'll see you there.